Thanks for joining us for the Covenant Living Broadcast with Pastor John Butler of Covenant Life Church, located at 130 Atlantic Avenue in Bremen, Georgia. This week, Pastor John starts a new series. This series is entitled Foundation of Our Faith. Today's message is part number one of that series, and it is subtitled Believing the Word. And now, here's today's message. It's going to be a little different, a little different kind of message today. Y'all ready for different? Everybody okay? You're like, Lord, last week was different too. I know, I'm just full of surprises. All right, Matthew chapter 7. Anybody ever been challenged in their faith? People challenge you when you say you're a Christian, you say you believe in the Word. The people challenge, how do you know that what you believe is true? How do you know the Bible was, was, was God-inspired? How do you know what makes the Bible special? What makes the Bible different than the Koran or, or the Book of Mormon or any other religious book? Why the Bible? What's the big deal about the Bible? We're going to start talking about that today. Matthew 7, this is what Jesus said. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Notice there's two verbs there, listen and follow. You got to listen to it and follow it. If you do, you're wise like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise, the wind beats against the house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and the floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Let's pray one last time. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would anoint your word today, anoint our ears to hear it. God, I pray that we would learn something today and that we would experience something with you today that will quicken our souls and our spirits, that will build our faith and give us courage to not only believe, but to put into practice what we believe. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are living in a culture that is constantly changing, isn't it? And changing rapidly. The things that we once thought were foundational, the things that we thought we could take for granted can no longer be assumed as a given anymore. Pretty much every institution that we've had in our culture has failed us. With the, the institution of government, of church, of marriage, of education, media, entertainment, all of those things, we can go on and on and on, all of those systems, all of those institutions have, have failed us. So with everything that changes, that has changed in our world, the question has to be asked, what's left for us What's left for us to build our lives upon? What is it that we can do? Is there anything that is beyond the, the, the reach of our ever-changing world? Anything that can be a bedrock for us? Anything that we can, we can build our lives on? And I would suggest to you today that the Word of God is that rock that Jesus was talking about. The 66 books of this Bible are the written expression of Jesus Christ Himself. And I want to show you that in the Word. In John chapter 1, verse 1, John 1, verse 1, uh, John said, In the beginning, the Word already existed. So, no, now listen, don't think this. In the beginning, the Word existed. I want to show you. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now look at the pronoun beginning the second verse. He, he, the Word is not an it. 
It's a he. He's a he. The word is a he. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him. And nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. Does that sound familiar to anybody? The light shines in darkness and darkness can never extinguish it. Now there's a parenthetical for the next like 10, nine or 10 verses. And then we get back to the subject in verse 14. This is, this is the conclusion. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. And the Word is Jesus. He said following his teaching was building on the rock. And he is what he taught. He is what he taught. There's no falsehood. There's no hypocrisy. If you study my life hard enough and long enough, you're going to see that I fall short of meeting the standard that I preach to you from this word. There are areas of my life that I'm just not getting it. I'm just not killing it. Does that surprise everybody? Anybody? If you, if you look hard enough, you're going to find areas that I'm just not living up to what I have to preach from the truth of the word. That can't be said about Jesus. Jesus lived every word he spoke. He embodied the word of God. No falsehood, no hypocrisy. So if you want a relationship with Jesus, you've got to get to know his word. I've heard people say, well, listen, I want a relationship with Jesus, but I don't want to study some old ancient book that was written by people just like me. Listen, the Bible is not like any other book ever written. It may have been penned by humans and by people just like us, but make no mistake about it, it was authored by God himself. And it is the foundations, the foundation of our faith. And that's the series that we're going to begin today, the foundation of our faith. Because what you believe about the Bible is crucial to your faith. If you don't, if you don't understand the Bible for what it actually is, then your faith is going to be built on a, on a sinking sand foundation. You've got to understand the Bible for what it is and for what it was intended to be. So, so why is the Bible so important? Because if there's no more, if there's no objective truth, then my opinion is just as valid as your opinion and yours as valid as mine. There, there's, there's, and in that situation, there's no moral authority There's no right and wrong because we're all equal. Who says what's right and wrong, right? You say, well, I believe in God and I believe that that he has the final word on moral issues. I would agree with you, but how do we know what he thinks? Who's going to decide what God is speaking? Who's going to decide? How do we know what he approves of and what he disapproves of? So if we keep having this conversation back and forth, we keep exploring that issue, pretty soon we're going to we're going to just we're just going to scream out if only he had written down his thoughts. If only we had a copy of what he wanted us of what he wanted to communicate to mankind. See the Bible It's not just a bunch of cool stories and teachable moments. It's how God communicates his will to us. It's how God communicates his thoughts, his character and his nature, his idea of justice and righteousness, of good and evil. It's the objective truth that we need to build our lives on. 
It is the written form of Jesus Christ himself because he and the word are inseparable. You can't know Jesus and not know his word. You can't know his word and not recognize and see Jesus. What you believe about the Bible forms the foundation of your faith, either solid rock or sinking and shifting sand. So today I want to show you some evidence that might help you recognize how special this book is and and some evidence that will help you as you have conversations with people who are struggling in their faith or struggling to believe that there is a faith to believe in. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to start exploring the word. And ultimately, I hope that you'll believe with me that this book is the solid rock that we build our lives on, that, that you can trust what it says is true, that you can trust what it teaches is important, and that it will, it, you can trust that it'll never change and that it'll never fail, that the Bible is the foundation of your faith. So why should you believe the Bible? Today's believing the word. Why should you believe the word? What evidence is there that makes the Bible different than any other religious book? Well, the Bible is full of prophecies. It's full of prophecies, hundreds of them. As a matter of fact, over 2,000 prophecies. And while most of the time when we talk about biblical prophecy, we think of prophecy referring to the end times. We think of it when Jesus uh, makes his second coming, when he, when he uh, makes the final judgment. Well, that's what we think of when we think of prophecies. But did you know that there are hundreds of prophecies in the Bible that have already been fulfilled? That there are prophecies that were given years and years and years before the events would happen, and yet history shows us that they happened exactly as the Bible foretold. So I want to show you some of these fulfilled prophecies, and and I, I I want them to help you understand why you can believe the truth of the Word, that Jesus is the Messiah, and and ultimately believe in the existence of God. So why are we doing this? Because you will not believe, you will not follow what you don't believe. You won't follow what you don't believe. So this message is called Believing, Believing the Word. And, and, and I just want to say this, among other sites that I researched, and there were, there were many, but there was one site in particular that, that brought together a whole bunch, sort of compiled um, a, a whole bunch of the facts and, that I'm going to be using today. It's called faithfacts.org faithfacts.org. So if this kind of wets your whistle for this kind of stuff, then you might want to check out that site. All right, so let's dive in. First of all, fulfilled prophecy can help us believe in the truth of the word. Now let's look at what God's standard for prophecy is. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18, he, he said, but you may wonder, God says, you may wonder how will we know whether or not a prophecy is from the Lord? If the, prophet, if the prophet speaks in the Lord's name, but his prediction doesn't come true or doesn't happen, you'll know the Lord didn't give that message. The prophet has spoken without my authority and need not be feared. God holds his prophets to a high standard. They, they are accurate 100% of the time. That, that's a standard right there. According to, according to studies of so-called psychics, they are, they are only right about 8% of the time. About 8% of the time. And most of that can be attributed to either knowledge of the circumstance or good observational skills or just a good guess. Because even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. Right? 
So, y'all ever seen a blind squirrel? Anyway, so, if you need to see a blind, there's probably one at our house somewhere. So, some people point to Nostradamus. Anybody ever heard of Nostradamus? So, uh, he was a 16th century Frenchman who made lots of predictions involving wars and conflicts and, and natural disasters. Um, things that are always going to happen. So if you, you make a problem, oh, there's going to be a war one day, you ain't got to be a genius to figure that out, okay? So he made, he made those kinds of prophecies. The, but they're, they're like fortune cookies and horoscopes. They're, gen, they're, they're stated generically enough that you can make almost anything fit there if you want to. And then there's also evidence that many of the things that we've attributed to Nostradamus, he never wrote in the first place. People have written it in his style and attributed it to him. But let's, let's look at some of the prophecies of the Bible. They are very specific, and, and those that are not awaiting future fulfillment have come to pass with 100% accuracy. And I want you to see, beginning in Isaiah chapter 44, so this is the last verse of 44 and the first verse of 45, Isaiah 44, 28, God is saying, when I say of Cyrus, note the name Cyrus, when I say of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he will certainly do as I say. He will command, rebuild Jerusalem. He will say, restore the temple. Look at the specificity here. This is what the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed one, whose hand he will empower. Before him, mighty kings will be paralyzed with fear. Their fortress gates will be opened, never to shut again. Now, here's the context. You need to understand this. The prophet Isaiah wrote this, lived around 700 B.C. And he predicts that there will be some very specific stuff, that there will be a ruler named Cyrus that Cyrus would rise and that he would command that Jerusalem and the temple be rebuilt. Here's what's remarkable about that. Jerusalem was still standing. The temple was right there. So in order for his prophecy to come to pass, then Jerusalem would have to be destroyed. The temple that's standing right there would have to be demolished. And there would have to be a ruler named Cyrus that would rise, would take the throne. So listen, the, 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 this was in 700 B.C. The, the temple and the city of Jerusalem weren't destroyed until 586. That's over 100 years later. The ruler Cyrus would not take his throne until 553 B.C. That's 150 years after, G, after God named him, called his name, and wrote it down. And then the temple would be rebuilt in 536, almost 200 years after Isaiah said it would happen, and called him by name. Isn't that ridiculous? That's ridiculous. That's remarkable. And, it, it, and it's not just Isaiah. In Daniel chapter 7, and we'd have to read the entire chapter in order for you to see what I'm talking about. So if this interests you, either on the positive or the negative, go home and read it. Daniel chapter 7, the prophet Daniel describes a vision in which he saw the rise of four major kingdoms, four major empires or kingdoms. He was currently serving in the Babylonian Empire, which was the first one that he saw. And then he describes a ferocious beast with two distinct sides that describe the Medo Persian Empire. Then a leopard with four heads describes Alexander the great and the Greek empire. And then finally was this indescribably powerful beast that arose that symbolized the Roman empire. It contained such specific information 
that it could only be understood to represent those four empires. And Daniel told about them between 615 and 536 B.C., at least 200 years before Alexander the Great and, and three or 400 years before the beginning of the rise of the Roman Empire. Now, speaking of Alexander the Great, Daniel had another vision regarding him. At the end of the Babylonian uh, Empire, which is where they were at the time, he saw this vision and he saw a ram with two long horns, which represented the Medo Persian Empire that was about to rise. But look at what Daniel said in Daniel chapter 8, verse 5. Daniel 8, verse 5. Listen, don't get lost in, in the detail here. Stay with me because we're going somewhere. While I was watching, suddenly a male goat appeared from the west, crossing the land so swiftly he didn't even touch the ground. This goat, which had one very large horn between his eyes, headed toward the two-horned ram that I'd seen standing by the river, rushing at him in a rage. The goat charged the, uh, furiously at the ram and struck him, breaking off both his horns. Now the ram was helpless. The goat knocked him down and trampled him. No one could rescue the ram from the goat's power. The goat became very powerful, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. In the large horn's place grew four prominent horns pointing in the four directions of the earth. Then from one of the prominent horns came a small horn whose power grew very great. It extended toward the south and the east toward the glorious land of Israel. The goat is Alexander the Great. When you look at history from this period of time, Alexander the Great is clearly the reference here. He came quickly from the west. Greece is west of, of Babylon. He came quickly from the west, and he died in his prime at age 33. His, the, the big horn was cut off. History tells us that he, he left no one to succeed him, no, no heirs. So his kingdom was divided up among four generals, four parts, one for each of his generals. That's where the four horns that sprung up came from. The largest of those four horns was the one south and east towards Israel. And history tells us that there was a man named Ptolemy who set up his kingdom in Egypt, and he and his successors ruled Egypt and the area of Palestine and Israel for the next 300 years. 300 years. Do you recognize that if this prophecy had been off by one little detail, like he had seen three horns instead of four, or any other detail that it could not have been a prophecy from God because he, he holds to 100% accuracy, that it could not, it would have, it would have um, watered down the truth of the word and given us reason not to believe. But it was specific, and it was detailed, and it completely matched what happened in history. Let's keep going. Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12. Jeremiah said this entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. 70 not 60, not 100, 70 years. Then after the 70 years of captivity are over, I will punish the king of Babylon and his people for their sins. I will make the country of the Babylonians a wasteland forever. Again, very specific. The prophet says that Babylon will rule the land of Israel for 70 years. Then God will punish them and deliver the Jews. The Babylonians conquered the Assyrians in 609 B.C., which meant they ruled the nation of Israel and Judah. And then in 539 B.C., 
Cyrus conquered the Babylonians. Exactly 70 years from the time they, the Babylonians took them to the time that God began to punish the Babylonians. Exactly 70 years. Jeremiah was a prophet in an entirely different kingdom. It was during the Assyrian kingdom when, when the Assyrians took over Israel. He was dead when Cyrus came to power. He had no influence over Cyrus. He, he didn't even exist in the, uh, in the era, in the, amount, in the, uh, the era of time that this was going to come to pass. But he was absolutely right. And by the way, the Babylonian empire, just as the Lord said, has been a wasteland forever. It's never been rebuilt. Never. You say, John, that's all Old Testament stuff. Is there anything in the New Testament? Absolutely. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in the walls. Y'all remember this? Jesus replied, yeah, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. This was around 33 BC. This was right before his crucifixion. Less than 40 years later, the Roman army invaded, captured and invaded the, the city of Jerusalem, burned the temple, and literally Tore, tore the stones one stone from another because there was gold overlaid on the stones and they didn't want to miss any gold. So they tore every stone apart. They left no stone on top of another. These are just a few of the many prophecies that have been given and fulfilled, many of which are backed up by history itself. And the more archaeological sites, the more archaeological digs they do around the nation of Israel, the more evidence they find separate from the Bible, the more archaeological evidence, historical evidence they find to back up what the Bible says. So you have to admit something's different about this book. So there, there's no other religious book that makes this many specific and detailed prophecies. Why? Because if you have no real power to make them happen, then it's just going to make you look foolish. No other religious book has, has seen this, all these prophecies fulfilled over and over again. The fulfilled prophecies should lead you to trust in the truth of the Word of God. Now, here's the second thing. It will also lead you to trust in the Messiahship of Jesus, to trust that Jesus is the Messiah. So what do the prophecies have to say about Jesus? Well, as actually a lot. Of the 2,200 prophecies that are in the Bible, over 60 of them, uh, or 300 of them, have to do with the Messiah. 60 specific prophecies, 270 implications, prophetic implications that are offered there. Everything from, listen, from where he'd be born to where he would die, to how he would die. It, they made reference to his miracles. They made reference to his anointing by the Spirit and all kinds of other stuff. All of this predicted hundreds of years before he would be born and most of them beyond his ability as a human to cause to happen. So you recognize, you, you can't just say, well, Jesus was born and he decided he was going to fulfill all these. There are some things, you don't get to choose where you're born. Right? Did any of y'all choose where? You don't get to choose what family you're born into. His, the prophecy said he will be of the, the house and the lineage of David. You don't get to choose your family. Some of you are like, yeah, I know that's right. Yeah. You, whatever, gets, whatever you're born into. Let's look at a few of these. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. 
But you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, and yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. I'd say eternity past is pretty distant, don't you? Yeah. So if you remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This was, this, this was written about 700 B.C., about the same time as Isaiah wrote. Of all the cities and all the towns in existence at the time of this writing, he specified this one tiny little village south of Jerusalem. And so when you're calculating the chances of Jesus being born in Bethlehem, then you have to calculate all the cities that were in existence in Israel at that time. Look at Isaiah chapter 7. All right, then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will, be, she will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Listen, being born of a virgin kind of thins out the pool of qualified candidates, doesn't it? Kind of makes it specific. And, and, and nobody gets to pick their parents. Look at Psalm 22. My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You've laid me in the dust and left me for dead. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. Do you, do you hear the imagery of the crucifixion of Jesus in that? That, that they, they harassed him mercilessly, they surrounded him, They're, his enemies surrounded, that his mouth was dry. Remember him crying out, I thirst? But this psalm, this psalm was written in 1012 B.C., a thousand years before the birth of Christ. And it described the manner of his death. It described crucifixion. You're like, oh yeah, crucifixion. Crucifixion in the way the Romans did it didn't even exist for another 800 years after this psalm was written. Nobody was piercing hands and feet. That's not how they did it in those days. And it wouldn't be used for another 800 years. Those are just three prophecies. There are, there are 60 specific properties, uh, prophecies. And every time you add another prophecy, every time you add another detail, another, another layer of specificity gets added, and it makes it more and more complex, and it makes it less and less likely that it could happen by chance. There's, there are 60 specific prophet, prophecies about the Messiah. Jesus fulfilled every one of them. Every one of them. You're like, well, I mean... It's kind of unlikely, but it could happen. He could just have been the guy, you know, and just everything lined up for him. Okay? So a group of math nerds got together about 30 years ago, 1992. Mathematicians decided to get together and, and look at just eight of the prophecies of Jesus, eight specific prophecies about the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. They wanted to calculate the chances that any human being could have either accidentally or, or even intentionally fulfilled all eight of those prophecies in his lifetime. Here's what they discovered. The chances of that happening would be one chance in a number that's represented by 10 to the 17th power. That means a one and 17 zeros. So a billion, now listen, there's not even a name for a number that big. A billion has nine zeros. 
by comparison, the chances that you will be struck by light, that any one of us will be struck by lightning in our lifetime is less than one in 10,000. That's only four zeros. Here they are compared. So that's a billion up top. That's 10,000. And then that number down there is one with 17 zeros. Would anybody be upset if you open your bank account app tomorrow and there's 17 zeros on the left side of the decimal, not the right side? In other words, it is so statistically unlikely that they considered it impossible. It's just not possible. So let me, let, me, let me use this analogy. This is the analogy they came up to explain how improbable this is because it's hard for me to wrap my brain around 17 zeros, okay? So if you took that many silver dollars, so one with 17 zeros, so however many that is, you take that many silver dollars and you lay them out in the state of Texas, it would cover the entire state two feet high, two feet deep. That's a bunch of silver dollars. I'd be all right with a few of those silver dollars, wouldn't you? Yeah. So they, they'd be two feet deep. Now go in and pick up one of them, mark it with an X, put it back, shuffle it all together. Then you take somebody, blindfold them, send them out in the state of Texas, give them one chance to find the silver dollar with the X. What do you think the likelihood is that they will pick the correct coin on the first and only try? Y'all ever been to Texas? Huge. Our son was stationed in Texas. We went out to see him for the first time. We drove for eight hours and we finally got to the state of Texas and we're like, yeah, we're here. Five more hours and we still weren't there. And we were still in East Texas. It's, that place is ridiculously large. You, you, so it's huge. I think any reasonable person would say, John, that's just impossible. And nobody's going to pick that one coin from the state of Texas. And I'd say you're right. I'd say it's impossible. And remember, that's only eight of the prophecies. When you include the other 58, uh, 52 specific properties, why do I keep saying properties? prophecies and the 270 implications, it's incalculable. It's mind-boggling. It's just not possible. I say, well, John, what's the conclusion? What's all the, you lost me with all the numbers. Here's the conclusion. Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah who was prophesied about for thousands of years. It goes all the way back. The first prophecy goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. This is, what, this is what God said. The Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. You'll crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman. Anybody hostile towards snakes? Any serpent hostility in the house today? I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And that's singular when you look at the the original language. One offspring in particular. He, not they, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Or the King James says he will will bruise your head, but he will crush, you will bruise his heel, he'll crush your head. Satan struck the heel of Jesus 
by putting him on the cross. But Jesus crushed the head of Satan by rising from the dead. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of the Father. He is the way and the truth and the life. He is the only way to the Father. He is the only one worthy to be the sacrifice for us. He is the first. He is the last. He is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the living embodiment of the Word of God. And if you want a relationship with Him, then you better get to know this book, to know it, to learn it, to understand it, to practice it, and believe it. Believe it. The prophetic evidence is overwhelming, and we just scratch the surface. You can trust the truth of the Word of God, and you can believe that Jesus is who He says He is, the Messiah, the Son of God. And here's the last and maybe the most important point of all of these. These fulfilled prophecies not only help you believe in the truth of the Word and, and that Jesus is the Messiah, but they help you believe and understand the existence of God. They help you believe in the existence of God. You say, John, listen now, you calm down. This is pretty impressive. I admit that. That's pretty impressive. Kind of hard to argue with, but I don't see how it helps me believe in God because I am a person of science, that I believe what I see. I look at evidence. Okay? I get that. I understand that. A lot of people like that. Let me ask you a few questions. If this evidence that I presented leads you to believe in the truth of the Bible, then where did that truth come from? Who actually made the predictions? Who gave them the information? You say, well, the prophets did. They were just, you know, Isaiah and Daniel and Jeremiah, they were just, they were just amazing people. So, so were they like psychic? Is that what it is? So if they were psychic, where does that power come from? Where does psychic power come from? Is it from the universe? Well, where's the universe come from? Evolution? That can't be your answer. Not scientifically. The evolutionist will even confess that their theory needs an infinite number of chances in an eternal past for it to be even plausible. It, it needs an eternity past of chances to get all the right chemicals and, and everything together at the same spot at the same time, just that life might begin. Scientists tell us that the, 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 the universe that we live in is expanding. That when they look at it, everything is going away from each other. It means it had a... So just think about this. If it's going like this, then if you reverse time, eventually it, it was like this. It, it had a beginning. That's what science says. It had a beginning. Not an infinite past, a beginning, and a relatively recent beginning. So something or someone lit the fuse on this universe of ours. It started. You say, well, listen, I can't believe in something that I can't prove. Well, then you're just never going to understand the origins of the universe because science requires the ability to replicate the results. And the origin of the universe was a one-time deal. You, don't, you can't do that in a lab again. So the, it, it's, it's not repeatable. And since it's not repeatable, it can never be considered a scientific fact. You will eventually have to look at all the evidence and decide what, you will, what you're going to believe. 
So if the Bible is what it says it is, and Jesus is who he says he is, then there must not only be a God, but he must be the God of the Bible. That's the only logical conclusion. But listen, logic can't lead you to relationship with God. You can't think your way to God. You can't investigate your way to God. After the resurrection of Jesus, the apostles went all over the, the, the known world at the time, all over the Mediterranean area. They went to Jewish synagogues and they sat down with people and they showed them the same prophecies that I showed you this morning and a whole bunch of others. Week after week, they would search the Old Testament scriptures and they would talk about the prophecies that I've shown you. These were Jews who had been waiting and watching and hoping desperately for the Messiah to come. For generations, year after year, decade after decade, they would pass down that hopeful anticipation that the Messiah would come. And when the apostles would open up the word and show them what I just showed you, some of them still didn't see it. Because at some point, you will come to a gap between what you see and what you have to believe in in order to have a relationship with God. Facts might get you to the edge but only faith is going to bridge the gap. Amen. Let me show it to you in, in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. The writer says, it's impossible to please God without faith. It's not possible. Anyone who wants to come to him, so if you want a relationship with God, you want to, you want to be saved, you want your sins to be forgiven, all of that, you want to come to him, you have to believe that he exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. The only way to build a relationship with God is through faith. You have to believe. And that's not just an academic agreement that you lost the argument. It's going all in on having a relationship with a divine person that you'll never be able to quantify with math you'll never be able to analyze with psychology, that you'll never be able to fully study with science, but that you know beyond any of your doubts that he exists and that he wants to reward people like us who will seek him and follow him with our whole hearts. He will, and the reward that he gives those who seek him is a relationship with him that lasts forever. He said, John, but I need evidence. Okay. I'll get you some evidence. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 in the King James. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is, faith is the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the evidence. It's, it, it fills, your faith fills in the gaps of what you can't put your hands on. There, there is no other way. If you could fully understand God and fully comprehend his ways and his power and, and, and his expanse, then you'd be God, not him. It takes faith to believe and faith to accept that you're a sinner, but that Jesus made the way for you to be saved. Let me show it to you in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace are you saved... You're saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God. It is the grace of God, the gift of God, that we even have a chance to be saved. But faith is the bridge that gets us there. 
Listen, the Word of God is the foundation of our faith. It's the foundation. You have to believe this book. You have to. And this book is under attack. And our faith is under attack. And, and you can't just say anymore because the Bible says so. Because less and less people every day believe what this book says. They believe that they can take it or leave it. They believe that they can, they can use whatever parts of it they want and then ignore the parts that they don't like. But you have to believe this book. And then not only just believe it, you have to trust that it's the actual Word of God. And then, and then once you believe it and once you trust it, you have to obey what it says. If you hear the Word, Jesus said, but you don't follow it, you're deceiving yourself. And that's the worst kind of lying. Faith has to lead to action. So in the, in the, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be exploring issues around the accuracy of the Bible. How can we trust that it is today what it was thousands of years ago when it was written? We're going to discuss the translations. You know, like is the King James the only true version? Or are there other translations that are okay to read? We're going to discuss the origins and the purposes of the Bible. What does the Bible say about itself? Is it just a bunch of religious teaching, a bunch of just cool stories, or is, there, is it more than that? Does it contain errors? Can we pick and choose what we believe and leave the rest of it? We're good, that's in the next couple weeks. We're going to talk about all those, all those questions. But today, today I want to give you the opportunity. If you've been struggling with your faith, if you've, if you've been hearing this today and you've been struggling with believing the Bible, with believing in God, but, but you've been inspired today by this, by this evidence, then you need to take that next step of faith. Because just agreeing with everything I said is not going to change your situation in life. It's not going to change your spiritual condition. You have to take the step of faith. As the Spirit draws you to Him, you have to take that step of faith and say, God, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. I don't see everything I want to see, but I believe in you. Would you stand with me this morning? Just a moment, I'm going to invite you to the altar. I would say I would open the altar, but the altar, this altar is never closed. So I'm going to invite you to this altar to pray, to seek the Lord. Because the, the Lord said, my house will be called, not just a house of praise and worship, not a house of preaching, my house, my house will be called a house of prayer. So if you need to pray about anything, then today's your day and right now's your time. And if you want to respond to, to this message, if you say, John, I, I finally get it. I finally, I feel the spirit drawing me. I know, I know it's time for me and God to connect and have a relationship then I want you to come and find me. I'll be in this altar. I'll be right down front. I want you to come and find me. And I want to I pray with you. I want to lead you not to, a, not to a knowledge of God, to a relationship with God. We pray that you have been blessed and inspired by today's Covenant Living broadcast. To find out more information about our ministry, just visit our website at www.covenantlifewestga.org. You can find this video there on our homepage. Just click the YouTube button and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a call at 770 537 
770-537-3747. That's 770-537-3747. At Covenant Life, our mission is to go and make disciples by being real, relational, and reaching. Be sure to join us next week for more Covenant Living with Pastor John Butler.